Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. We can find instant satisfaction in almost anything these days. Sleepy? Instant coffee. Need to sell your car fast? Car sales? Instant offer. That's right. Sell your car the instant way. And get it done with Australia's most trusted site for cars. Welcome back, Damien Watson with you here on SEN. If you want to text in at any stage, 0433 98 11 16. Well, as we build up towards another Melbourne Cup carnival, it's noteworthy the amount of pressure the jockeys, trainers and even owners feel, but spare a thought for the race callers who narrate the race that stops a nation to a vast audience with the final 20 seconds of the call serving as probably the most scrutinised piece of commentary in Australian sport each year. One man who put himself through that pressure on 36 occasions in a Melbourne Cup and stood up every single time is legendary race caller Greg Miles and I'm privileged to say that he joins us on the line to reflect on his Cup Week experiences and how he's going in race calling retirement. Greg, thanks for your time. Uh, hello there Damien, very nice to uh, to be with you and it's uh, I think it's four years or so since I uh, since yeah. I hung up the binoculars so it's nice that you can still remember me and give me a call. No, you, you did a fantastic job for so, so many years. Just on that pressure, how did you deal with the pressure? Like, we're currently recording this Thursday before the Melbourne Cup and Cup Week itself. What would you be doing normally at this stage in preparation and would the pressure be building within you? Oh, yes, it's on your mind for the whole spring carnival, really, just uh, getting to that pinnacle of, of Melbourne Cup Day and, and, and getting it right. Uh, and you never stop um, preparing, I suppose, uh, always looking at replays and doing form. Either you're either at the track uh, performing or you're getting ready to go to the track or you're, you're reviewing what you've already done. It's, a, it's an intense sport. Uh, it's an intense business race calling and particularly this time of year when mm. there's so much more scrutiny and, and the, the level of your audience numbers is through the roof, of course. That's right. When I speak to people like Matty Hill, they often say the worst part in terms of nerves is actually before the race. Once you get stuck into it, it's all right. Was that the same for you? Was it the lead up, the 30 minutes or so before, say, a Melbourne Cup or Victoria Derby where the jitters or the butterflies might build up a little bit? Yeah, absolutely. That's the time you just want to ground yourself, keep your feet, you know, firmly planted on the earth and I used to make sure that the broadcast box door was locked because where <laughs> Flemington is, is <laughs> that's absolutely true. And I said, I don't care if it's the chairman of the club, no one's coming in that door, right? So I'd always have maybe one or two people with me. Um, there was a sound technician in latter years. My, uh, my older son, Daniel, was very keen on racing and he would be in the in the broadcast box with me and pretty much that was it. So... Uh, um, and the thoroughfare where the broadcast boxes is at Flemington is a very busy area. We're right alongside all, a lot of the uh, corporate boxes. So, You're the kitchen, aren't you? Uh, yes, there's a massive amount of traffic. Truly, the kitchen and the the, uh, the facilities, the bathrooms are right opposite where the broadcast box door is. So there's a tremendous amount of people traffic, and quite often, you know, people will just walk walk in and say, "What are you blokes doing?" So I said, "Just keep the door shut. We've got a." My mentor, Joe Brown, used to describe it as uh, the cocoon of concentration. And in that 
last 45 minutes before the Melbourne Cup, that's when you don't want to be upset in any way. The only thing you want to be going through your mind is the names of the horses that are running in the race, the colours, the jockeys, and nothing, nothing else to really interfere with that train of thought. Well, that's a good point you make, and just on that point as well, I mean, Joe Brown, of course, a famous commentator with the ABC who you took over from back in the early 1980s. Just in regards to an incident, there was one incident, wasn't there, in it might have been Torrific's Cup in 1989 where a spectator got in the way uh, with their champagne. They might have been a little bit inebriated. Did you have to whack them away because they were getting in your line of sight? Yeah. Oh, my goodness. My, my heart is starting to race just thinking about that again and uh, you're so right it was the first year I'd called the race on the uh, public address system so I'd moved into a a new broadcast box which was uh, about 15 meters closer to the finishing line but it was alongside to my right hand side was a uh, a corporate box and uh, there was a, a ledge like a viewing ledge out in the front of it and no one had ever been out there all of Derby Day and it never entered my mind that anyone would wander out there and no one was out there for the first six or seven on Melbourne Cup Day but when they jumped in the Melbourne Cup these figures sort of appeared to my right-hand side and as I was calling the field down the straight the first time I I realised that if they continued to stand there I wouldn't see the turn out of the straight for about three or four hundred metres. So I was figuring out as I'm calling, what am I going to do here? I, I couldn't you know, stop calling and say, please take a step back or anything. So I got my race book and moved it from my left hand to my right hand. And as they made the turn out of the straight, I swatted them <laughs> like flies. <laughs> and and they, they then realised that, uh, oh, they were in the race quarter's way. Um, very unnerving. They weren't even watching the race. They were just gobsmacked with their jaws dangling loose, watching what I was doing. So, yeah, it was uh, it was a not a terrific race call. <laughs> I like the little pun there. We're speaking with legendary race caller Greg Miles. 2016, I think, was your last Melbourne Cup call. I mean, I spoke about the pressure before and how intimidating that can be, but there's also an adrenaline rush, I would imagine, that goes with it because you know, you're know you the voice that's describing the race that stops the nation. Is there an element of that that you miss, or do you think as the time goes by, you miss it less? Oh, yes, I think it's something that I'm getting gradually used to. When the first spring carnival that came around after Almandon's Melbourne Cup, I was completely lost. I, you know, I was at the track and wandering around in circles and didn't know where to go, and it was it was very difficult. Yeah. Um, but, uh, look, I don't miss the pressure of that, uh, of that moment, uh, that lead-up to that particular race. I'm quite happy that, you know, I've... I've Finish and put my cue in the rack and uh, leave it to the leave it to Matt Hill and others that might have a crack these days. So, um, but that that Melbourne Cup call was probably one of the more difficult ones that I've I'd encountered in my career because there were so many similar colours. Yeah. Uh, it was a sea of blue just with distinguishing caps, and they used the same caps to distinguish from different blues. And it was it was a nightmare to be honest, and I was I was so glad that uh, I was fortunate enough to to get it right on the line. 
Well, it's funny. I mean, everyone remembers that line you provided with Maccabi Diva's fur Melbourne Cup in 2005, a champion becomes a legend. But a lot of the true racing pundits out there often say that that last one, 2016, was your best race call because of that very reason, how difficult the degree of difficulty actually was for you as a race caller. Uh, you speak of Matty Hill before and Jared Waitley, of course, calling for SEN as well. Two guys that you actually mentored for a period. Uh, Matty came into the box on his 15th birthday to meet you for the first time and you've been almost inseparable ever since. He's seen you as a mentor and Jared Waitley as well came into the box with you. How important is it mentoring young race callers? Do you worry a little bit about the future? Because there used to be so many race callers at the track for Melbourne Cup Day for different media organisations. Now there's not really all that many. Is that reflective maybe of the fact or, or the perception that not too many youngsters are all that keen on race calling? Yeah, it's certainly not uh, the glamour job, I suppose, that it was when, when I was a teenager and you'd look up into the into the broadcast box area and see five callers on any given Saturday afternoon broadcasting the races and there was a huge buzz at the racetrack in those days, which doesn't really exist these days outside of spring carnival time. And let's face it, nowadays uh, there's only, for the majority of the, of the year, there's only one race caller there. And as you say, uh, at spring carnival time, uh, when, when Jared is there, so there's, there's only two. Occasionally there might be three if the television caller uh, is used separately. It doesn't happen too often nowadays. So mm. there's generally only two callers there. Um, the internationals don't don't come over anymore, so um, it's probably not quite the the, the glamour job as I as I said. And I am a bit concerned about the future of race broadcasting because I, I when I first started uh, and went to the track and was practicing calling into a tape recorder and what have you, they were clamouring for positions to uh, to call. But <laughs> nowadays, uh, yeah, I, I don't know what we're going to do. I'd, I'd I'd love to be able to uh, to assist. I know there's a a couple of young uh, blokes coming through uh, that are, are very, very keen and uh, the future's there for the immediate sort of next 20 years or so. But beyond that, I don't probably have a problem then, will it, after 20 years goes by? <laughs> I don't know. You never know what will happen in 20 years' time. We're speaking with legendary race caller Greg Miles on the line. Just in regards to COVID as well, now that has changed race calling because Matty Hill, for instance, has got to come up with the fact that there's no crowd there and that can be a bit different. I guess there are some meetings in the middle of winter that you encountered at Sandown, Greg, that didn't have much of a crowd anyway, but it's different, isn't it, with the Melbourne Cup and with the big races. A crowd is returning, obviously, this weekend, but... With the lack of crowd or over the last 12 months in certain cases, no crowds for big events, does that change the race call a little bit and how you feel? I mean, if you put yourself in those shoes? Yeah, it would be quite unique. I, I never have experienced anything like it, so I'd be just surmising a bit. And I know I spoke to Matt Hill after last year's carnival and he said it was exhausting uh, because you had to really sort of in a false way bring up your adrenaline whereas when you're there in a big crowd uh, you're on your toes and and the adrenaline is pumping because they produce that excitement within you you know and you and you know something really big and important is about to happen and there's a buzz and a feeling in the air but when that's not there you have to artificially manufacture that and to get the excitement level and i think i think matt's done a marvelous job um I'm not too sure how I go because my entire life was, uh, you know, with 100,000 people there pretty much. 
Uh, that's a good point you make. And speaking of the future of race calling as well, I mean, more and more in sports broadcasting, we're seeing games in any sport being called off the TV. And in certain areas of the world, I think in certain parts of Europe, they do call races off the television screen. I mean, if you were a youngster coming through, Greg, today, would that be appealing to you or does that put you off race calling a bit? And could that potentially happen in the future where a race caller, I mean, we have the technology to do it now, calls conceivably the Melbourne Cup off the TV? Yeah, I'd hate to see that. Uh, you're talking about manufacturing uh, excitement. Well, if you're sitting in a studio 25 kilometres or whatever away from the race call, um, some of those European broadcasts are dead boring, aren't they? Um, <laughs> and and I think they can do it a little better there because their races are so much longer in the main. You know, They're calling 10 furlongs, 12 furlong races at fields of 7 and 8, so... Uh, it's pretty easy to do, but uh, in Australia, when you've got 24 charging it, you're up the straight at Flemington. I don't know whether you'd, you'd be too accurate off the television monitors. I think you've really got to be there, and I think it would be most unappealing as a, as a uh, broadcaster to consider that that might be what you'd want to do. I think it'd be like calling Tesla and it was out of the barrel, I think. I <laughs> you've got to be there and get that feel. That's my, that's my opinion. That's what it's all about, to get that... You know, that smell and the sound and the just the, you can touch the magic when you're at the racetrack, but you can't do that in the studio. <laughs> Having said that, though, from a logistical point of view, Greg, during your time, didn't you have to adapt to calling part of the race off the screen because they put up marquees in the middle of Flemington? I'm not sure if it's the case this year because there's not as much of a crowd, but they generally put a marquee in the middle of Flemington and you can't see part of the race. I mean, was that difficult to adjust to because you're calling off the binoculars and you've got to switch to the TV screen? They're back to the binoculars? Yeah, I found that very difficult because it, it, you had to really time the run of uh, of calling the field to finish at that point when the, when the field disappeared so you could then go back to the leaders and call... Uh, there was a, a portion from a, uh, around about 200 metres or so that I had to call off the TV monitor. Uh, yeah, I didn't enjoy having to do that because you had to structure the race call to suit the television uh, angle. So it didn't quite work the way I'd like to, but um, in, in the main, I started to call a lot more off off the TV monitors in the latter part, particularly at Flemington, um, because I, I sort of realised, well, the majority of people who are not at the track will be watching the vision from the Channel 7 coverage. So I, I tried to call off that as much as I could uh, and then just generically call the finish of the race. So, yeah, it was creeping in uh, in uh, the end of my career and I think it's probably a step that you know the current callers and the future callers might, might consider. Speaking with legendary race caller Greg Miles ahead of Cup Week, just going back to the beginning for you, Greg... What stirred you about the spring carnival itself and listening to it potentially on the radio? Because it was not the same TV coverage, you know, 30, 40 years ago as, as there is today. I mean, what's the first spring carnival you can remember uh, in terms of embracing the occasion and, and perhaps inspiring you to become a race caller? Were you a Bill Collins or Burnt Bryant man? Did you have a particular race caller? I love the both of them, to be honest, uh, for different reasons. And um, and I fell in love with horse racing by listening to those guys uh, calling the races on a Saturday afternoon and the amount of 
information and the excitement and the vibrancy coming through the radio and that's what sort of fascinated me you know probably in the very early 1970s was when I first uh, got hooked I'd say from late 1960s early 1970s mm. and um, it, it sort of grew from there I was I was a dull twiddler I'd listen to Bert and then I'd flick over and listen to Bill and um, and, and take in the both of them and and then, you know, fortunate enough to be going to the track as a very young fellow and listening to Joe Brown, who was uh, at that point still calling over the public address and hearing his uh, beautiful tones and never getting excited, but just turning the crowd just with an inflection of his voice. It was quite, quite exciting. Uh, that's, what, that's what got me involved in, in, in thoroughbred racing. And how did you prepare for a big race? Just give us, as, as listeners as well, as an insight, uh, what you would do to prepare for a big race or a big race day as well, because there's a lot of horses involved, particularly at a big card like Derby Day, like Melbourne Cup Day. You've got to remember their dump, remember their dump, all the horses, because you don't want to get them mixed up race by race. How did you go about preparing that? And did that change over the time with the advances in technology and the accessibility you had to replays and things like that? Yeah, absolutely. It, it changed immensely um, over the period of time. But when I first started in 1981, uh, clearly there was uh, uh, there were no personal computers. Uh, so your guide was what was produced by the by the newspapers. Um, the race books had scant, if any, real information to help you. Um, so it was a matter of you know, waiting for the, the form guides, the, the, the Sportsman or the Truth or whatever it might be, the Sporting Globe or the, the Herald Sun, uh, and waiting for their form guides to be produced and then you'd start your homework on the usually on the Thursday or Friday night um, before the race meeting and go through the form. And form study has changed enormously as well. It used to be just um, you know, looking at the, at the race and doing your weights and measures and uh, off, off raw form, but now... As you mentioned, video replays come in, and so you're, we're a far more informed audience than ever, ever before. You can look at jump outs and trials and all sorts of things these days, and it's at the, the click of a, of a mouse button, and you can view these things. So we're far more informed, and from a race calling point of view, um, one of the last things I'd do after I'd done the form and what have you would be print out a set of the jockey's colours and just an A4 page, and I'd have that sitting in front of me, and the only thing on it would be the jockey silks and the name of the horse. And that was just there as, a, I guess, a form of uh, just a, a little support, a mental support, that if, if there was a, you know, a little, uh, am I sure of this one? I had a quick glance down and just confirmed that I've got the right colours. So that changed enormously. When I first started, you, you just have to try and visualise, close your eyes and think what would those colours look like, you know? Uh, yeah, and you'd have all of those colours in your head the night before the race meeting, and, and then, as you say, you'd use them and then forget them and move on to the next set of, of colours. Um, Bill Cotton said, you, to be a good race caller, you need a, a memory like a sieve <laughs> so you can just keep processing the information, which I thought was quite clever, quite a clever line. Do you think it's an innate thing, race calling, Greg? Is it something you just have because it's quite unique and there's a certain amount of ingenuity that comes with it or does it come through hard work and exposure or a bit of both yeah look i think it's a bit of both um clearly you've got to have a a real interest and a and a passion for racing first and 
and then want to be a broadcaster. I mean, we're weird cats, I think, uh, the race course. <laughs> um, it's, it's, not a, it's not a usual sort of thing that you, you desire to do, but uh, it's tremendously rewarding when you get the opportunity to call some of the bigger races. So, yeah, I, I don't really know where it comes from. I guess there's got to be some kind of a gift because there's been a lot that I've seen come to the racetrack and try and, and not continue on. Hmm. Um, over over the years when I was calling you know, they'd come and go young people try to have a crack at it but you either can or you can't and then those that can need to really hone the skills and, and work hard at it so that you can you know, like anything you know, if, you, if you're a golfer and you can swing a club well you've got to be out on the practice fairway every day of the week to make sure that your swing's perfect and it's just pretty much the same for broadcasters Speaking with legendary race caller Greg Miles just a few more before we let you go Greg and really appreciate your time just in relation to perhaps, I mean, we're all human beings and ultimately mistakes can be made, particularly when you're calling a fast-paced, intense race over a, a certain distance. How do you come back from that? Because every race caller has made a mistake. They're not machines. They're not robots. How do yeah, you come sure. back from that and uh, having the resilience as well? Because a lot of race callers, particularly young race callers, might be put off by that. Yeah, oh, look, it's it's exceedingly difficult and it's more difficult these days um, just because of uh, the level of scrutiny and social social medias uh, it's just tremendously unkind I mean my my biggest mistake later in my career was when I uh, mispronounced Magnolian Khan Magnolian Khan and um, I mean there were mitigating circumstances which I'm not going to try and make excuses for myself I made a mistake um, and I was made to pay for it in blood. It was e- extraordinary uh, the the level of criticism and uh, that that was levelled at me. I, I was just I was taken aback, I must say. But mm. one thing you got to do is just put it behind you. And it made me so so determined to uh, the next meeting I called was at Geelong Cup meeting, and I was so determined to be as word perfect as I could be. And then to go on to uh, uh, Mooney Valley and then the Flemington Carnival, and that yeah. was the year the Prince of Penzance uh, um, won the Melbourne Cup. So, had a, I think I, I called as well as I've ever called after that uh, incident. But uh, yeah, and I've made many, many other mistakes when I call for more than forty years. I've made many, many more mistakes and far bigger mistakes than that. But uh, that was the one that uh, the public seemed to enjoy hammering me more about than anything else. Oh, look, it's it's hard. Uh, a lot of people can uh, swing from the cheap seats, but it's bloody hard to do it when you're actually in the chair, and uh, I defy anyone to do it. We're speaking with Greg Miles. What about today, Greg? Do you still follow the races as keenly? Uh, do you pursue other interests? And I've always wondered, too, this is a two-part question, a lot of race callers as well, they branch out into other sports, and we're seeing Matt Hill and Jared Waitley do just that at the moment. Did you ever have the temptation to branch out into another sport, or was it always race calling for you? Yeah, I didn't really. Um, I had a couple of minor, minor dabbles that um, didn't amount to anything. Um, my passion was horse racing, and I figured if I could just do that to the best of my ability, that that might you know stretch my talents. So uh, I didn't want to stretch myself too thin. I, I admire the guys who can do it, and there's been not many. Uh, the likes of uh, you know Jared and Matt and, and Bruce McAvaney yeah. who've been able to. Peter Donigan's another that's been able to do uh, multiple sports, but there's 
it's, there's very, very few of them. Uh, Bill Collins was good enough to be able to call yes. athletics. That was yeah. one. I would have liked to have done done that, but it wasn't a passion of mine. Um, and I think to be really uh, good at those other sports, I think you've got to have a little bit of a passion for it as well. That didn't exist with me. I'm a casual observer of the other sports and, you know, I love watching the footy and cricket and whatever else, but uh, not, not passionate enough to, uh, to want to broadcast it. Horse racing is enough. Yeah. Enough for me. That's but then the other part of your question is, I, yes, I still follow the races absolutely uh, as, as almost as closely as I did when I was calling. I still do the form. Um, I still I watch every race. I'm watching the Warrnambool races today. Uh, I watch them every day, and I and I, and I love it dearly, and I love getting to the track. So it's it's it was it's been a passion from mine of mine since I was a, a schoolboy, and it, it exists today. And I think it's it's true what a wise man once said that the the sport of horse racing and, and betting is curable only by death. <laughs> it's a good saying. And uh, just before we let you go, last question. Your favourite ever Melbourne Cup winner and favourite ever Derby winner over your time as a race caller? Oh, boy. Um, <laughs> it's a hard one. Yeah, I don't know. I guess... I guess Maccabi Davis got to be up there as far as the uh, as far as the Melbourne Cup is concerned. That that return to scale, uh, I'll never ever forget that moment when she stood in front of the crowd and, and bowed like she just knew what she'd just done, and it was it was just a lump of the throat kind of stuff. That was that was amazing. Um, Derby, goodness me. Um, um, I guess mahogany. I've never seen a horse win a Derby like that. That uh, turn of acceleration that. He possessed and he ended up being one of our best ever sprinters, but he managed to towel up a derby field by about six or seven lengths one year. Yeah, that's a good one. And uh, one of my favourites was you calling Rebel Raider in 2008. It was a 100 to 1 shot, mainly because I had a few dollars on it uh, just quietly. Uh, Greg, uh, really. Very famous one for Claire Lindov, of course. Yes, yeah. that's right. Greg, really appreciate your time. Thanks so much for reminiscing and discussing, I guess, the state of race calling today as well. It's an interesting time in racing as, as to how it evolves and the actual art of broadcasting the races. Uh, all the best for the future. Uh, Good on you, Damien. Nice to have a chat with you. When making the double chicken deluxe at Macca's, we wanted to improve on the perfect combo of tender Aussie chicken with cheese, tomato and aioli. So, we doubled it. Chicken and Macca's together and loving it. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Available after 10.30am for a limited time only.